0: welcome back yap fam today we're replaying my interview with matt higgins matt is a serial entrepreneur and investor he's the co-founder and ceo of rse ventures and he's the former vice chairman of the miami dolphins He was also a shark on ABC's Emmy award-winning show, Shark Tank, in seasons 10 and 11. Matt recently came on Yap to talk about his new book, Burn the Boats, and that episode comes out March 6th, which I'm super excited about. In honor of that, it felt right to replay this interview so you guys can get all of his entrepreneurial insight and life story before hearing anything a layer deeper in terms of business strategy. In this Yap Classic episode, Matt tells us his incredible rags-to-riches come-up story, He faced so much adversity growing up, which makes the massive success that he has today even more impressive. We'll learn how he started RSC Ventures, how he first met and became business partners with Gary Vaynerchuk, and what Matt believes makes a great entrepreneur. This episode is chock full of timeless business wisdom, and I can't wait for you guys to hear it before Matt's new interview drops on March 6th. Without further delay, here's my interview with Shark Matt Higgins. Hi, Matt. Welcome to Young and Profiting Podcast.
1: Well, thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: I am so excited to have you on the show. I am a Shark Tank fanatic. It is literally the only TV show that I watch for the past like five years. And uh, I first found out about you on that show, and you are an exceptional businessman. You know, you're the founder of RSC Ventures. You were working for the Jets, the Dolphins, you've done so many cool things. You're a partner in VaynerMedia, which people don't even really know about. And I can't wait to dig into all of that. But first, I want to start with your childhood, because I know that it has a lot to do with who you are and how it's shaped you. And uh, a pivotal point in your life is when you dropped out of high school. So I thought we could start there. And I want to understand, you know, why you decided to drop out of high school, how you came to that decision, and really, to start, leading up to that? Like, what was it like for you leading up to that? I know you had an ailing mother. She was sick. And I would love to understand that dynamic.
1: So we're just going to go deep, right? right? We're just
0: going to go. We're just going to start right at the deep parts. All
1: right. Sounds good. So uh, and for those of you who heard this story, I apologize. But um, uh, so my, but my background does have everything to do with who I am today is for most of us, for better or worse. Um, I grew up in Queens, New York. Shout out to Queens. Uh, and uh, with the product of a single mom with four miserable boys growing up in a tiny little shoebox apartment on Springfield Boulevard in Queens. My childhood was framed with, you know, extreme poverty, extreme shame, extreme concealment. Because as a kid, you know, you, you the last thing you want people to know, at least back then, is how poor you are. So my early days were through of endless side hustles. I used to sell flowers on street corners. I was that kid knocking on your window. So be nice if somebody's trying to sell you flowers, you know. Um, I would sell handbags at flea markets, ten dollar leather handbags. And I worked at McDonald's scraping gum from the bottom of um, of tables. So so that was the context. My mother was amazing, worked really hard, and she had um, no high school diploma growing up. And you know, she got divorced when I was around nine, and it always was sort of a hole. her life that she knew she was smart and gifted but had gone through this terrible childhood and actually didn't even have a high school degree and so i watched her go from basically on her hands and knees cleaning apartments for elderly homebound senior citizens to getting her GED at the local community college and then enrolling in queen's college and really fight for years upon years to get first a bachelor's degree and then eventually pursued two different master's degrees uh, in urban studies and library science. So my prism of my childhood was poverty, dysfunction, but also aspiration and watching my mother go through this journey. And around you know 13, I would be, have all these mixed emotions, which anybody out there who's suffering alone can relate to, like, is anyone gonna help? And does anybody care? And eventually I made a decision that, like, I'm gonna take matters into my own hands. And the key is I need to make enough money to eventually get out of here as fast as humanly possible, right? Because you have a selfish streak as a kid. Nobody wants to be in charge. And so watching my mother do that, get her GED, as an adult gave me an epiphany that um, there was a loophole back then, that if you could get your GED and do well enough, you could technically go to any college. So they said, right? Nobody really does this. <laughs> but, I, but I thought, well, why don't I just do this on purpose and re-engineer and make, architect my entire life and that's what I decided when I was 14. And in order to make sure I would stick with this crazy plan, that I um, made sure I got left back over and over again. So I sat in the same homeroom with kids with beepers who were pursuing a very different path, you know, dealing drugs or whatever, just sat in the back of that room and I decided I was gonna drop out. And it was the most important decision I ever made because I had the whole weight of the world telling me, one, you're gonna be branded a loser, Two, you're never going to be able to get a good job, et cetera, et cetera. And what I learned from that experience is like maybe true from may this educational path may work from where you sit, but as a kid trying to take care of his parents, his mom, this doesn't work for me. And I need to get to college as soon as possible so I can get a well-paying job. And that's what I did. And I, it was actually the best, most important decision I ever made in my life. Everything I built um, from that point forward was on top of that one decision.
0: It's it's so amazing that you had that kind of knowledge at such a young age and you were able to make such a big decision and stick with it, even when people told you that it would be the worst mistake of your life. I know you were a good student and a lot of the, your teachers kind of weren't approving of what you were doing. But in terms of your, your parent-child dynamic with your mom, how you had to act like the parent, how do you think that that impacted you later on? Do you feel like that gave you a chip on your shoulder? Do you feel like that made you like super responsible for the rest of your life? Like how did that positively impact you? Because at the time it really probably sucked, but now do you feel like that has positively impacted you in any way?
1: Well, that's a a great question. I mean, I think, well, number one, it made me very empathetic, like to watch a person literally deteriorate throughout your entire formative years, you know, to jump to the end of the story I drop out of high school. I go to college. I go to college for seven years at night. I work and work and work to build myself up. I went from McDonald's earning three seventy-five dollars an hour to the time I was 26 years old, 10 years later, to being press secretary to the mayor of New York, making six figures. That's a lot of ground to cover. But also, she deteriorated throughout that entire path. So while I was doing that, living this secret life, I would spend my nights at the ER you know, we literally had no money and I refused to go on any kind of public service. We would go to the church all the time for food. So what I learned from that, this, the day I become press secretary, the mayor of New York, this heady moment when I finally achieved everything, she dies that morning. So I guess the reality, what I learned from it is that the greatest thing you could do with your time, energy and money and power is to ameliorate somebody else's suffering. It doesn't mean that you have to like, devote your life to being a saint. But just from a practical standpoint, if somebody had intervened in that journey in those 10 years, she would not have died. I mean, like, we just were wasting away. And so that stays with me. Two, there's no cavalry coming. It just is what it is. It sounds harsh. But you have to take matters into your own hands. You have to be an agent in your own rescue. And three, like, I, if I'm being... Totally honest. You know, the parent child dynamic is supposed to be one of sacrifice. Like at the end of the day, it's a one way street, right? (laughs) Like if you're doing this because you want your child to fulfill you, take care of you, realize all your unrealized aspirations, you got it wrong. And so I honestly learned a lot from the dysfunction of that dynamic and to resist it, because you want to make sure you don't pass on these patterns to the next generation, right? And so, but also at the same time, normally when things are distorted in a parent-child relationship, it's because of some trauma that has been unrealized or un- unmitigated or unsynthesized, you know? And so I think that was the case with, with, my, with my mother. Like, you tend to pass on dysfunction from one generation to another. So I guess my real answer is to really be aware of the patterns that govern us so we don't pass that on to the next generation. Uh, and that's what I've worked hard on, although I'm probably screwing up my kids in untold other ways by probably overcompensating. But anyway, it is what it is. We're all flawed. But I, th- I think that's my greatest lesson I took away from it.
0: I love that. So let's let's back up a little bit. So you had all these crazy jobs. You were scraping gum underneath seats at McDonald's. You were selling flowers on the street. And then you got your first real job. It was being a reporter uh, at the Queen's Tribune or an investigative reporter, right? So talk to us about how you end up getting that first job real job.
1: Yeah, that's a great way. You did your research, too. So I haven't talked about this in a long time. I think it goes back to the every one of us has some kind of gift, some kind of advantage that we could press. But we spend so much energy worrying about what we're not as opposed to focusing on what we are. So what was I this, in this little unformed shell of a being at age 16? I could really write. I was gifted with language. And with writing so how do i translate that so my actually my path out of, out of poverty is one of education but one of communication and pressing that so first job even before that was working for a congressman and doing letters and like and whatnot and he, he said you know you really are gifted there was an opportunity in a newspaper that he owned an interest in in queens called the queen's tribune they were starting this column where people would send their problems in and and i was meant to do muck problem solving and but I took that little column and turned it into something a lot bigger, did big investigative pieces, would often team up with big New York City reporters, and you know some of them resulted in, uh, in awards. So I learned how to press whatever advantage was in front of me to turn that into something much bigger. And I, and I say this to millennials all the time, like make yourself indispensable at whatever it is you're doing right now, because that is the path to do what you ultimately want to do. So even if you're not happy or you think a job is pointless, Press the bat, press the advantage. And that's what I did with them writing. My ultimate aspiration wasn't really necessarily to be a reporter, but it was a bridge to where I was going.
0: What I love about you is that because you dropped out of high school so early, you ended up getting so many experiences, so much more hours of work than a normal teenager would have had. And then that puts you ahead of the game. So by the time you were 26, you were press secretary, which is probably what like a 36 year old would have accomplished, not a 26 year old.
1: By the way, it's a brilliant point that you just raised. Like I I, you know, Warren Buffett says the most important thing in the world is compounding when it comes to wealth. Like and I sort of expand the concept of compounding interest to apply to compounding experiences, which is the same thought applies. If you could pull forward experience, you have more time for that experience to create exponential growth. Right. And that's truly the story of my life. Because people say, well, how did you do you've overseen two NFL teams by, you know, 40 something around Shark Tank at 43, teach at Harvard Business School. It really goes back to the fact that I was put in a bad situation or like a lot of people. But because I pulled forward my my uh, my evolution, I was able to everything compounded from that moment forward. So I say to folks like, be patient, but be urgent because if you can pull forward experiences, they, they will compound. But that's a great, great point. I'm really passionate about it. If ever there was a formula to what I have pulled off, it's that particular phenomenon.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's amazing. So I know that to get your job as press secretary, you actually quit quite a few times. And uh, I know you just mentioned this thought about being indispensable. And I I wanted to add to that, that it's be indispensable. And if they don't appreciate it, quit (laughs) because you can get some leverage that way. So talk to us about the importance of quitting, why you quit and how you kind of climb the ladder that way.
1: I love this topic, too. You're hitting on all the topics I love. So anybody listening out there, point number one, opportunity is a leading indicator of success and recognition is a lagging indicator. So what I mean by that is, if you are a successful person and good at something, you will be given opportunity by a person with authority, but the opportunity won't come with the recognition that you secretly crave, money, title. First grab the opportunity and then there's a lag between the time you get the opportunity and the time recognition comes. I'm just trying to reduce this to a formula because I know there's a lot of people out there. Am I being taken advantage of? My career's saying, you know, shouldn't I get a promotion? There's always a delay. That's life. You will have to make the first deposit. But then you have to assess, okay, after a certain period of time, where's the line between natural lag versus exploitation? And so if you are working for somebody who's a taker or a withholder or a gaslighter, you know, whatever the category is, that's when you have to have the courage to quit because there's another overarching phenomenon operating on humans, especially in positions of authority, which which comes from a place of insecurity, is that familiarity breeds contempt, which really sucks. Because it's like, wait, why are you looking outside this organization for shiny objects, but I'm right here. You know, so, but, the, but you have to be on the lookout for an organization that looks for shiny objects and is contemptuous of its own talent, happens more often than not. And that's when you have to quit. So when I was young, this is a little absurd, but you know, I felt I, was, I think I was 22, 23, I was ghostwriting p- pieces for the mayor of New York. I was doing all this like incredible work, but my official job was like handing out newspaper clips. At, like five thirty in the morning, I would like cut clips literally from the newspaper and put them on a eight and a half by eleven and walk around in this drudgery of handing them out to people while, while doing this heady work of writing things. And eventually, I felt like the delta between opportunity and recognition was coming too great. And I was like, well, I want to be press secretary. And I, you know, I, I, want to, I want to, you know, that's what I want to do. I want to sit in that chair, not that chair. And then the answer was like, wait your turn, wait your turn. I also had the urgency of trying to elevate quickly to take care of my mom. And then I quit. And then everyone was sort of horrified. And uh, yeah, and I, and I went to the most boring job. Mind numbing I could hear the blood rushing through my ears, but it paid more. Quitting is not disloyal. That's the, there's a different point. You should be loyal and you should give give to get, but you should also know your own self worth and just never be afraid to bet on yourself. If you're basically saying, "I know my self worth, and I want to go because I want to do something with myself. I want to expand myself." It's not, and and you're not being mercenary about it. If you're just quitting money because you're for hire, that's different. If you're if you're moving on because you want to progress, nobody can begrudge you.
0: Let's hold that thought and take a quick break with our sponsors. If you want to make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign, go to linkedin.com slash yap, Y-A-P. Again, if you want to claim your credit, go to linkedin.com slash yap. Terms and conditions apply. I love that advice. So let's talk about mortality because I think this is a really interesting topic. You mentioned earlier that your mother passed away the first day that you were press secretary. I can relate. My father passed away the week that I started my company and we grew to 70 employees in our first year. He didn't see any of that. But it also really motivated me, the fact that he passed away because I realized that life is so short and that we only have one life. And it it made me really get myself into high gear. And I know that you also had testicular cancer, you know, in your 30s. And that also had you thinking about death, I'm sure. So what is your perspective on death? And how did those experiences shape you?
1: Yeah, I think my first big experience with death was watching my mother um, pass away. And just watching those like desperate last minutes, the bargaining that happens, to be honest with you. And this is, you know, sort of a a tough detail, but just in the last last couple of days, she's very heavy. She couldn't really get out of her chair. It's just beyond, I couldn't even betray to you how miserable this environment was and oxygen tank. And she was bargaining like she knew. And I didn't realize, I just thought it was another day in hell. You know what I mean? Like when you're living in like a fever dream of of madness, it's like, oh, this is just another day. And she asked me not to go to work that day. Like, please stay home. And I'm like, we have no money. Like I have to go to work. I didn't know that day was any different than any other day in our living hell. And so I watched the bargaining though in those last days of like, I won't eat poorly anymore. Like, you know, and I didn't know she was bargaining with her maker. And so I witnessed the regret, the overcoming dread you have at the end of life and thought, you know, wow, it really does can end terribly. My mother worked so hard to try to get somewhere in life, never even took a vacation or a plane and yet still died. And so, I I mean, I say that in such rawness because I don't want to gloss it over and like, but everything was fine. Like it was not fine and it was terrible. And she was worried about being discarded in life right after working so hard. So what that taught me is, like, you really have to be in touch with your mortality and take custody, because it does end at any moment. And no one's going to, at the end of your life, reconcile all the things that you didn't reconcile, you know, the bargaining phase. So that's kind of point one. Two, um having gone through cancer and uh, going to Sloan Kettering, I was only 20—now, what was I old? How old was I? I don't even know. Maybe 32. I had just had my son. And I remember once I—my mortality—like, I wasn't dying tomorrow. And I was like, I think we're going to get through this. And what it did is tell me how much of the things I think about every day don't hold up against the prospect of imminent death, which is interesting because I'm like, wait, the idea of death is hanging over us all the time. And yet I spend my time scrolling through New York Times classified sections looking for a bigger house. Like, I was like, oh, wow, so much of our thoughts are meaningless. And that's a gift to be aware of and hold on to. So it changed my perspective on mortality. Long story short, you know, I have an app on my phone called we Croak, which is inspired by uh, the folks in Bhutan who contemplate their own mortality five times a day. And what you find out when you think about your own mortality frequently, it's not a morbid, actually. It's peaceful because it relieves you of all the aggravation and the daily stresses because they just don't hold up against the prospect of death and mortality, which we all live, on, live with. And you realize how much of our angst that we go through on a daily basis is trying to confuse ourselves or distract ourselves from the idea that we're, we don't know why we're here and we don't know where we're going. Now, for those who are very religious, maybe it's a little bit easier, but for the vast majority of people, like we don't know what we're doing here and we don't know when it's going to end and we don't know where we're going. And so I think if we lock in on that, then you say, well, what do I know? Oh, the present. The present is the one thing that I'm guaranteed. The present is the one thing that feels so great and I'm so grateful for. And so I try to every day bring it back to Sloan Kettering bring it back to the idea I might die and bring it back to the awareness that uh that mortality and what you know what it, what it makes me do is like celebrate my wife who's my best friend celebrate my kids and just make like who cares about this stupid email this and interpolitical fight of nonsense crap that I'm dealing with so I recommend to everybody out there download that app kids think I'm crazy by the way especially when I read the quotes from somebody Voltaire about you know death but uh but it works
0: we croak. It's called yeah. we croak. Oh,
1: yeah. It's,
0: it's so interesting. Honestly, Matt, you are such a role model. I just want to take a second to just say like, wow, like you've done so much in your life. You've come over so much adversity. Your mother is probably so, so proud of you. So
1: thank you. Congratulations. You know, can i tell you a little story since you, you're, you're like, you're going so deep on it. Of course. Amazing story. A positive note about my mom, because I feel like this is so, can be so grim, but I went back to deliver um, the commencement speech at my college. And I really wanted to do it because it's where my mother went to school. And when I was a little nine-year-old boy, some of the positive uh, memories I had were sitting in her classroom uh, in the back on a Saturdays, watching her sort of take custody of her life as a single mom. So big moment. It's only a couple of years ago. I'm only 43. They're giving me an honorary doctorate. So I went from a PhD to a PhD. And I feel like this is my moment to inter my mother Uh, soul on the campus. And I'm going to honor her. And I'm like, how am I going to get through this speech? Such a hard speech to give. So I'm walking in the procession, you know, with all the gear and everything. And um, there's an older professor, older gentleman, interrupts the line, say, excuse me, I need to say something to Matt Higgins. And I see his face. And it's the weirdest thing. I'm like, I recognize this face. And And he comes up and he goes, hey, I'm Professor Dean Savage. I just want you to know that I had your mother as a student. And she was the best student I ever had. And I'm like, That's the craziest, like a moment of, and he goes, I'm retiring tomorrow, but I needed to tell you before you gave your speech. I was like, and now I'm like crying. Like, (laughs) so, but what was interesting, she had always worried about being discarded. And here was this professor who 30 something years later is telling me that it was the best, and she would say he was the uh, best professor she ever had. So you can make a big impact on people, even if you have no money, no anything, just by being a good human being. So, it ends well, I guess is my point of the story. I give the speech, and, and now every year I have um, a group of single moms that I you know, pay scholarships for for them to go to Queens College, which is so fun because these are like my LeBron Jameses of people, like they're doing what my mom did. They're raising kids, and they're going to college. All of them have incredible stories of fleeing abusive husband or dealing with you know substance abuse issues, whatever, and now they're going to college while they have little kids, and so... I sort of took my mom's legacy and I just transfer it now through through scholarships.
0: That is so amazing and so positive. So, um, you know, you did so much more after this. You worked for the Jets for eight years. You, you did so much more. But let's fast forward to entrepreneurship and let's talk about how you got started in entrepreneurship. You say that Gary V was the genesis of of all of that, so talk to us about how you met Gary V. What what was that whole situation like?
1: Yeah, I was um, I was uh, overseeing the New York Jets, the business of the team, and was probably my seventh you know year, eighth year doing it. And it was not my dream to become a sports executive for life. I used to always say, "I have everybody's dream job, but mine." I loved it the organization but i'm not like a rabid sports fan where i want to spend you know my whole life doing it but it was a business and it was fun to run it high profile the whole bit and gary vaynerchuk uh was like you know this mythical youtube wine guy uh who everyone knew was a huge jets fan and wanted to buy the team so my guys were convinced that i could sell him a suite and anybody knows anything about sports and entertainment selling a suite was like impossible but i i told my guys okay i'll go i'll go meet him in springfield new jersey and I'll try to sell him a sweet. So we met for a bagel and a cup of coffee. And uh, well, everyone knows Gary Vaynerchuk or can easily now Google and see 8 million hours of content. But I meet him and he's wild, wildly gesturing, I'm going to buy the Jets. And, and he's, you know, whatever. <laughs> he's still out of his mind. I'm like, with what money are you going to buy the Jets? But then, and I, I, I pride myself on doing this. Like I can look past the packaging and, and, and say, and just listen to the quality of the thoughts and the predictions. And in that 30 minutes, Gary laid out a vision for the future that played out. And it and it, spo- it sounded like truth to me. So for example, this is 2009. This is when Twitter is just kind of like taking off. He's like, look, er- the future of the world involves every single person will be HBO and Comcast. They will be both the content producer and the content distributor. The entire world is gonna change, and these big, stupid corporations are not gonna be able to keep up with it, and they're gonna be battleship carriers, and I'm gonna build a speedboat. And my little brother, AJ, once he graduates college, we're gonna build a firm together. It's gonna to be amazing. We're gonna manage people's social digital. And by the end of the 30, I was like, I think Gary like, sees the future, and if I could figure out how to partner with him, we can unlock great things. And at that breakfast, we cut a deal. Why don't we do this? Why don't we take one player on the team and you'll manage their social media and you'll make them like Twitter famous. And if that goes well, I'll become the first client of what was to become VaynerMedia. And he did. We actually did social for a player, Kerry Rhodes, went and had dinner with, he's a safety at the Jets, went and had dinner with him. And, Jer- and Gary did a great job managing it. And VaynerMedia was born, gave him four Jets tickets to become uh, the first client. And then when I left, the Jets and started up my own venture firm. Went back and acquired almost forty percent of the firm, and we've been partners ever since. And the firm is, you know, probably the largest social media digital first co- uh, firm in the country. So, well, the moral of that story to me is when you spot greatness, figure out how you can unlock it, and in so doing, you can also change your own life. Right? Like Gary's my brother. I've had tremendous success, partly because of him in a lot of ways, not entirely because of him, I've done other things, but he's changed my life and and I believe that I made a huge contribution to his.
0: It's so cool. Gary Vee is such an idol of mine. I actually grew up right next to Springfield, New Jersey. And so I've been following Gary Vee for so long. So let's talk about RSE Ventures. Uh, it's a private investment firm that you started. You're the CEO and you've uh, helped companies like Warby Parker. What are the other companies that you've worked on with this? One?
1: Actually, Warby Parker is my partner, Jesse. He did that one. But, but no, but generally speaking, like big picture, the, the, the genesis of it was, when you own a sports team, you have so much access to deal flow. So you have an inbound that you could take advantage of. You also have perspective. You see a lot of emerging consumer trends. Uh, you see Pinterest maybe before others might, right? Like you see Snapchat taking hold because these are huge audiences sports teams have around them. And those emerging technologies are always pitching those sports teams to basically tap into them and offering equity. And so the epiphany I had with the Jets was like, we should be monetizing those insights. We should be backing these technologies, but also we then should be using the sports team as a Petri dish basically to go ahead and help them gain traction. So that was the general insight. So RSC was born around the Miami Dolphins in early days, and it's morphed into a pretty significant portfolio of great consumer brands. So our formula is generally a great founder, a Gary V type or whomever, who um, has some degree of magic, is going against convention and could use some support in some way to scale, right? So in the food context, that would be Christina Tosi of Milk Bar has been my partner. We spun that company off from Momofuku with Dave Chang, its own independent company, funded it, scaled it, now, if you walk down Whole Foods three years later, you'll see milk bar cookies everywhere, right? That's, that's a reflection of my work with Christina Tosi and my team at RRC. Um, We own Magnolia Bakery, which we acquired. Um, I'm giving all the good food stuff because like, that's more interesting than some of the other things. But but really, that's the approach. I wanted to take this interventionist, empathetic approach to founders and figure out how to unlock people's potential. Like I know what you get excited about doing in your life is similar to what I get excited about, Like. I wish somebody had unlocked me when I was going through whatever I was going through. So I just enjoy identifying like magic and saying, oh, what would it take to truly amplify whatever it is you're great at, whatever it is that makes you beautiful. And I get to kind of play with it kind of behind the scenes. It's, it's why I don't talk much about the Gary partnership because the truth is like, there's only one Gary and Gary is Gary, like my role is, is, is minor and I enjoy the, minor, the role behind the scenes, helping scale. So that's what I do across the portfolio. Version 1.0 was building things from scratch. We helped launch uh, Resi. We incubated that with Ben Leventhal and Gary Vaynerchuk. Uh, and now it's about owning significant stakes and great consumer brands.
0: And Resi is like a restaurant software or something like that? He's
1: a competitor to OpenTable that was born maybe six, seven years ago at this point and then was sold to Amex. And now uh, uh, Amex owns Resi. But in the early days of RSC, we would build companies from scratch or work with founders from scratch. That gets hard to do over and over again. Like you'll have a very short life if you keep doing that. So now it's more, a little bit more mature, significant interest, and then... Uh, helping uh, scale. But more recently, I've been backing great mature brands that I've come across through investing in digital uh, native companies or teaching at at Harvard. So uh, I backed Dapper Labs, which is a big NFT platform company. Thrasio recently invested in. OpenSea is another one. So because it's our own investment vehicle, don't report to the Wall Street, don't report to other investors. It's just a partnership. We have the ability to back whatever we find that's interesting
0: that's so cool. Help me understand something, and it might be a dumb question, to be honest, but how does a, the owner of a sports team or managing a sports team, how does that lead to a lot of deal flow, like you being exposed to a lot of deal flow? I don't quite understand that.
1: So entrepreneurs, when they have a consumer-facing technology, for whatever reason, they're always drawn to sports and entertainment to a lesser extent. But if you think about like a big artist, a big artist doesn't really have a platform to communicate or put a brand in front of their their fan base, right? But a sports team does. They reach millions of people like Real Madrid, right? Has like a hundred million people following. That. So it's a natural place for a Snapchat in the early days or any kind of social platform or e-com platform to want to tap into to get in front of that group. So... You, have a, you can see them pretty early. And often in those early days, the imprimatur of a sports team or a league is so valuable that they're willing to do equity deals in those early days. That phenomenon will carry on forever because you have a captive audience that's very loyal. So if, you know, the NFL or the NBA backs, like the NBA did with Dapper Labs early, that gives Dapper Labs a massive opportunity, right? So that's, that's really it. It's just people trying to back to that dedicated uh, core fan base.
0: Got it. Got it. Okay. Let's talk about VCs and and teach my audience some stuff about VCs. So aside from just giving money to people, what are the non-financial things that a VC or a private investment firm would do for an entrepreneur?
1: Oh, great question. Um, I think money, ideally money is just way down the list because money is money and you can find money in a lot of places. It really depends if the entrepreneur is self-aware and reflective, which to me is the whole ballgame, right? I, I think... A VC who's been down the road before, especially a VC who's been an operator, can be tremendously valuable. And so I would say to those, I have a, a tremendous bias towards people who have operating experiences because they will be much more sympathetic to the tr- the struggles you're going through and much more realistic. Like, it's, it's easy when you think the answers are on an Excel sheet, but the Excel sheet doesn't tell you anything. Like, all the issues you have to deal with as an entrepreneur are really about people and trying to get the most out of people, trying to deal with people, trying to navigate around people. Like so, to make that a little you know more more specific, like a great VC investor is somebody you could come to and say, "I'm really struggling." To fill this position. I need a COO, I feel like I can't handle it all, but it's such a hard person to hire because I have this delicate culture in my office, and you know, and Sally and Mark are competing for the top spot, you know, whatever, whatever the issues, is. that VC will help you source that person or will help you synthesize that fact pattern. So to me, number one, it's a place where you can frankly be vulnerable. And oftentimes that's the whole ballgame. Like if you could be vulnerable. With somebody, your investor, your spouse, your partner, you then can get through whatever it is you're dealing with. If you need to sort of hold back, because if you share your vulnerability, you're going to be criticized for it or judged for it, you really can't make progress. So a great VC will create a safe space where you can share your problems, hiring, you know, fundraising, product, everything that's going wrong. Because if you could voice what's going wrong, you can go ahead and figure out uh, what to do about it. Because... I always think the number one predictor I have for whether an entrepreneur is going to be successful is the amount of time it takes them to make a decision that's already become objectively inevitable. In other words, like, this product is going to fail. Like, it's clear the market has spoken. How long will it take you to kill it and acknowledge it and shift directions? And so many things will get in the way of making that decision. Fear of being judged, you know what I mean? Like, don't have another answer, you know, too big of an ego. So I think when you have the right level of self-awareness and a confidence and humility to pivot and iterate when you're backed by people that won't judge you for it, it makes it a lot easier and a lot faster to make those pivots. But I've seen the reverse when you have a bunch of investors, you know, wearing their Patagonia vests and staring at the spreadsheets, you know, never had a, never had an operating job in their life and like, just in it for the money. And they make your life living hell because they don't know what they're talking about. Cause they never had to hire somebody, fire somebody, They've never been on the line. They just learned about it in a classroom. Like, I don't know, so I have, as you could tell, a strong bias towards people with true operating experience as investors.
0: Yeah, I I think that's a great point. If you've never done it before, how can you give somebody advice who's doing it right now? It's it's pretty hard to do. Your
1: your advice will be cerebral or theoretical, but it's not going to be it's not going to be practical.
0: So, how do you have time for all of this? I mean, I like I said, I'm a huge fan of Shark Tank, and you were on two seasons, and all the sharks are investing in so many companies, and I always wonder like. I would probably want an investor. I don't have an investor for my company right now. I have bootstrapped the whole thing, right? And right. I think that, <laughs> uh, that's my na- that's my upcoming question. All right, we'll get to that. Okay, so if you have 500 companies that you're invested in, how do you have time for all that? And obviously, people are going to start to take priority and other people will fall to the wayside. So how do you deal with all of that? And if you're an entrepreneur looking for an investor, should you look for someone who doesn't have their star yet because you might want to be that star for them, if you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it is hard at the end of the day because you know you take on more, you have less capacity. Part of my objective is to render myself obsolete wherever that's an option, right? So whether that means hiring a really great person, I really don't try to hold on to things. I try to let them go when when I'm no longer useful. I kind of only tend to want to go where I'm useful uh, and serve a purpose. And when I don't, I'm just not that interested. So um, unfortunately, you know, that can make me very like, all right, well, there's no more problems here, so I don't really need to work on this right now, right? Like, we're, we're, we're good. So that's number one. Two, I'm very intentional about my time. People always say, "Are oh, you doing so much. I'm like, I'm, I'm very, very intentional about what I do. There is nothing that I do in a given day that wasn't thought through and wasn't through being really intentional. I try to set boundaries around the things that matter most to me. So I have a lot of room to roam elsewhere. So, in other words, my kids are the most important thing in my life. You know, my wife happens to be my best friend. So I don't have a need for a ton of friends. And like, she's who I want to hang out with. So I've constructed my life in a way that enables me to have a lot of room to roam outside of those really hard boundaries around the things that matter most to me. And then three, I scale. So I'm always scaling, trying to set myself up to level up beyond that. And yet I'm really hard on myself about am I doing what I said I was going to do? Am I executing on the things I took on? Because I don't have a lot of respect for people who my partner calls it as a grasshopper. You jump from thing to thing. So I'm constantly auditing like, wait, you said you were going to do this. You took this on. Are you doing it? And if you're no longer interested in doing it, have you leveled with everyone saying I'm going to move on now? Right. So, but it, you made a great point. It is a delicate balance. I'm like, I always, I'm sure I'm, I'm always pissing somebody off saying, oh, I'm going to get a hold of you. I miss you. You know, I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm just, to, I'm just trying to do something bigger. You know, like, I mean, so yeah, it's a great question. I think I've come to believe that the joy of living is in the striving. It's my formula for happiness. I figured it out. I ran my first marathon. I finished. And I was like, why am I so depressed? I'm like, oh, it was the training. And so I, I tell, I communicate that to people like, oh, this is how I'm wired. I really enjoy the pressure and the stress and, and the evolution. You know, I never taught a day in my life. I worked for almost a year to have the opportunity to teach at Harvard Business School. That's life-changing. So on the, with that comes the degree of shedding of other responsibilities in order to level up.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's just the way the cookie crumbles. Like, it is what it is, you know, and you got to focus where there's promise and the other entrepreneurs maybe hopefully get a competitive kick out of that too, and maybe level up themselves, you know? So I think,
1: and I also think that like, I, I give this advice to people too. Nobody wants to go on a rescue mission when you're, when you're trying to solicit support from whether it's a new investor or an existing investor, like, come up with discrete, actionable items that are impactful that make a difference because everybody's guarding their energy and their time, right? So I feel like it's on everyone else too to sort of t- extract from you what's most impactful, but leave you with enough bandwidth to do what you want to do, right? As opposed to coming to be like, I think we're out of money. <laughs> like in two weeks, I'm like, oh, okay. So <laughs> what's the plan? And I do get some of that in my life too. I'm like, come on, really? Like what you, you really are saying you want me to go on a rescue mission? Like you don't think I have a million other things going on in my life? Because I, I get that in my... I tend to get overly involved and I, I do feel like I've been through a lot. So people come to me, which I love. But then when people just come to me with a problem without even like a fact pattern that might get us out of it, I can't I can't stand that.
0: Yeah. Can't waste your time. You're a busy man, Matt. So let's talk about when we should look for funding. So I'll give you my example. So I bootstrapped my company. I started my company as a side hustle while I was working at Disney Streaming Services and Marketing. And I grew it for six months. By the time I quit, I had 35 employees all over the world. (laughs) And now we've, you know, we've hit 2 million in revenue in our first year. And I don't need an investor. My customers are effectively funding my company. I hit my first, my first real client was paying me 30K a month. And I feel like he was my seed investor. You know, all my clients are kind of like billionaires, millionaires who I run social media and their podcasts for. And yeah, I mean, I don't know. Sometimes we think about, should I change the structure of my company and figure out how we uh, get investors and start, raising money. I'm a really good salesperson. And a lot of people tell me I should go down that path and and figure that out and, and start raising money. And then internally, we're kind of just like, well, we could probably take this all the way, like how we're doing it, you know? So what are your thoughts there? When should somebody actually consider an investor? I mean, everything about us is hiring good talent. So if I got money, it would be about hiring better and better people and having unlimited amount of money to innovate new products and hire better people. So... What are your thoughts?
1: So, uh, great question, which everybody should grapple with if they don't. Because to bypass this critical question you know, you could end up in a, in a place you never intended to be, right? So I always think a lot of the the a lot of our dissatisfaction in life doesn't come from the wrong answers. It comes from the wrong question or failing to ask a question at all. So this is the question. Should I scale with investment or should I, you know, bootstrap? I think it comes down to what's the goal? What makes you content? We, I found this even when I, when I teach at HBS, it's like we have this presumption that the object of the exercise is to create a business worth $100 million or a billion, like, and to have these markers where it's so hard to make into two, you know, and to sort of be on your own, a completely autonomous, no boss, and feed yourself. Like, I marvel at that. Like, wow, you went out. So you're already doing it. Like, I think, you know, like you won. So then the question is, what does winning look like to you? Winning to me looks like you're already successful on your own, but winning to you might be like, I really want a big exit. I want an exitable business. A lot of times when you want an exitable business that can get, the, you do need the capital in order to scale bigger and so sort of faster. So to me, that's always the threshold question. And then it's the theory of the case. What kind of leverage am I really going to get at a, at a dollar in today that I couldn't achieve on my own by growing organically? So if you told me, that there, you're going to start this new, you know, um, uh, media property, right? And you needed to raise five hundred thousand dollars to create this media property. But with that five hundred grand, you're going to be within the next three months able to hire ten people. You're going to get it up to ten million impressions a month within a year, and you're going to get, you know, a whatever five x multiple on yada yada yada. And now that thing's worth twenty million bucks, and that matters to me. That would make sense because it's going to take you a long time to generate $500,000 in in free cash flow to fund that media property, number one. Two, if you said, and this idea is really time-sensitive because if I don't do this media property today, somebody else is going to do it, so I need cash, right? So it's a blend of what's my objective? Do I want an exitable business? Because oftentimes if I do, I probably do need to raise capital. What's the leverage I can get on a dollar in today? And is there an urgency that requires me to scale now as opposed to scale organically?
0: We'll be right back after a quick break from our sponsors. Young and Profiters, we are all making money, but is your money hustling for you? Meaning, are you investing? Putting your savings in the bank is just doing you a total disservice. You gotta beat inflation. I've been investing heavily for years. I've got an E-Trade account. I've got a Robinhood account. And it used to be such a pain to manage all of my accounts. I'd hop from platform to platform, Hey App Fam, starting my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass was one of the best things I've ever done for my business. I didn't have to waste time figuring out all the nuts and bolts of setting up a website that had everything I needed, like a way to buy my course, subscription offerings, chat functionality, and so on, because it was super easy with Shopify. (laughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your first product, finally taking your side hustle full time, or making half a million dollars from your masterclass like me. And it doesn't matter if you're selling digital products or vegan cosmetics. Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Shopify's got you covered as you scale. Stop those online window shoppers in their tracks and turn them into loyal customers with the internet's best converting checkout. I'm talking 36% better on average compared to other options out there. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., from huge shoe brands like Allbirds to vegan cosmetic brands like Thrive Cosmetics. Actually, back on episode 253, I interviewed the CEO and founder of Thrive Cosmetics, Carissa Bodnar, and she told me about how she set up her store with Shopify and it was so plug and play, her store exploded right away. Even for a makeup artist type girl with no coding skills, it was easy for her to open up a shop and start her dream job as an entrepreneur. That was nearly a decade ago. And now it's even easier to sell more with less thanks to AI tools like Shopify Magic. And you never have to worry about figuring it out on your own. Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. So you can focus on the important stuff, the stuff you like to do. Because businesses that grow Grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting. And that's all lowercase. If you want to start that side hustle you've always dreamed of, if you want to start that business you can't stop thinking about, if you have a great idea, what are you waiting for? Start your store on Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash profiting now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Again, that's shopify.com slash profiting shopify.com slash profiting for $1 per month trial period. Again, that's shopify.com slash profiting. Those are all super great thoughts that I'm going to noodle on. Yeah, that's for me. I'm just like, I don't know if I need an investor yet. I feel like I need some like other huge idea that I need funding for because as of now, I'm able to kind of pay for what I need.
1: Well, I also think about an agency. If you're going to run a pure agency... Then you know most of the time the answer is you don't need investment. You build it or again, you you win the contract you hire. You hire slight once you have some more free cash flow, you can hire slightly ahead of demand because you know the demand will come. I think that's a bigger threshold for an for an entrepreneur who's building an agency to overcome the willingness to hire slightly ahead of demand and have the confidence to know demand will come. I believe philosophically that problems beget solutions and people have it all wrong. People think solutions beget the willingness to undertake a problem because you've identified how you're going to solve it. I do the opposite. I like to create the problem for myself and then know that we have an infinite capacity to get ourselves out of situations. And so I place myself in a problem. So to you... I'd say, I'm going to hire three people. I'm not sure how I'm going to pay them, but I know I trust myself. I'm going to get the business to pay them. That's more important than taking an outside capital, actually. When you That's exactly
0: it. what we're doing right now. And what I'm just like are, booking sports uh, start dates and months ahead. And I know the clients are coming. And- I mean,
1: Gary Vee, when Gary did his deal with me back in the day, that money didn't go into the firm. It just went to him and to AJ. So truth, Media is a really 100% bootstrapped. We a little bit of money went into acquire Pure Al, but really actually Gary Gary built that with the hustle of getting clients and stuff like that. So it can it can be done. The biggest thing to overcome is the willingness to hire ahead of demand.
0: Yeah. It's so true. It's so funny. That's exactly what we're going through right now. Ooh, um, okay, so,
1: I, Do I have a future in this? Should I? Yes. I, let's, I, talk. I, let's talk. Let's talk. I, I,
0: I, listen, VaynerMedia has always been my dream. Don't get me started. I'm about to be on Claude Silver's podcast too. Oh, Claude is so,
1: such a sweetheart, by the way. Yeah,
0: she's so nice. She's been on my podcast. She was on my podcast like a year or two ago, and now I'm going on hers. So I'm excited. So let's talk about entrepreneurs and what you look for in an entrepreneur. So let's start there. And then I have a couple follow-up questions. Okay.
1: Uh, so maybe I put on kind of the Shark Tank context, but I think it applies to everything from my time when I was on Shark Tank. I look for probably signals more than anything. I really believe, I think the Italians have a phrase, you know, the fish rots from the head. I just think everything is about the integrity of the mind and the alignment of everything going on in your head. And, and so I spend a lot of energy really trying to look under the hood. Uh, and what am I looking for? I'm looking for, number one, like I mentioned earlier, self-awareness. In an entrepreneur, and it's like those sound like empty words, but we all can pick up we can pick up signals of self-awareness, one of them being, for example, if you're on the set of shark tank, uh, will you acknowledge that you don't know something? Do you have the confidence to say you don't know something? I'm looking for conviction though. I'm looking for somebody who doesn't simply capitulate to me because that's expedient. So how would that show up on Shark Tank? Cuban would say, like, your name sucks for this company or your packaging stinks after, like, we've looked at it for 10 seconds. And a person's like, with all due respect, like, I actually think and here's why. As opposed to, sure, I'll change it. Whatever you want. I just want you to be my partner. So I look for a degree of conviction, right? I also look for humility. Use of the we in the language rather than I all the time. Those little signals that say to somebody. And the reason why that matters, not... Not because I want you to be the nicest person in the world. People will follow others who bring them along, right? So it's all going to be that I, I, I. That tells me your ego is very fragile. You may be a narcissist. You're going to be unable to recruit people to your cause, including vendors and employees, and you're going to be less successful. So I look for that that conviction. I look for the self-awareness, right? I look for the ability to bring other people around, right? And of course, I look for mastery of subject matter. Uh, People who are looking to, like, delegate everything or outsource it, who don't have respect for what happens in the weeds, you know, who don't want to sort of sit in a stream of data, they tend to not be successful over time, you know? So, I really do look for a degree of willingness to be involved in minutiae, Right. And, I, and the things that get away with, that'd be ego while well, it's beyond me, or I just want to outsource all that. So I live for mastery of the facts. I can be unforgiving. If I think there's something you really should know and you don't know, that does say, I do judge that pretty harshly. So if somebody were to go on Shark Tank, for example, and they're starting a restaurant or whatever, or somebody comes to me and I ask them, what's your four wall? You know, what's your cogs, right? What's your occupancy cost? All these things are really important when you have a restaurant, food business. Your occupancy cost, for example, should be no higher than 10% of your total gross revenue. If you tell me you're the chef, I kind of just handle the food. I leave that to Bill to do it. It's like, no, 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 like food. Like, we'll just cook in your kitchen. Like, the opposite here is to make a profit on your restaurant. So I can be unforgiving when you don't have mastery of the things I believe you should. I could also be unforgiving if you bullshit me and act like you do when you don't. You know what I mean? So- it's new on we can do this all day about what I'm looking for, but my overall point of this philosophical discourse is I try to get under the hood of the head. I'm um, the worst deals I've ever done in my life are when I partner up with a private equity firm and they've got like, you know, billions of dollars under management and they bring in all these experts to do these expert reports. And then like I, I'll go into the deal on day one, I'm like, did you notice that the CEO is delusional? <laughs> like, I mean the reports are really great, but like a great product will never eclipse or overcompensate for a bad CEO, a bad founder, right? Whereas the other thing is true, is actually the reverse is actually true. A great founder can eclipse a really bad idea and iterate to a better one, but the reverse is never true.
0: It's so interesting. So something else that I've heard you say is that you feel like entrepreneurs today might be too overconfident. And that's because they have Google, they can search anything, you know, anybody can be an entrepreneur, you don't need an office, you have Slack, you have Zoom. So how can we prevent ourselves from being overconfident? And why do you think that entrepreneurs are so overconfident these days?
1: Yeah, well, I think number one, I think we do a disservice to some extent because we fetishize this idea of being an entrepreneur and like it's now the top Hierarchy, You know, everybody wants to be the hoodie wearing, you know, maybe not Mark Zuckerberg, but like, you know, there's, there's a mythology around entrepreneurism, which and because everyone has the ability to have a side hustle, we confuse side hustle with the idea of having a business. And so there's just not a lot of honesty about the drudgery and the pain of what it takes to create a business, but also the skill sets that are required. To be successful, I mean, you know this because you've had to m- manage people now. If you are passive-aggressive as a leader, you'll ultimately fail because you're going to hate the conflict. You're not going to be able to tell people and give them feedback. You're not going to be able to manage, hire slow, fire fast, all the things that go in to be a great leader. So my point being, we've made entrepreneurism sound a lot easier and more accessible than it is. And we've also made people feel bad if they don't have an idea or, or you know, some creative impact. We've almost um, devalued uh, what it means to be part of a team and how precious that is to serve for the greater good, how valuable, you know, yeah. that is. And so those are my kind of my, my big overall takeaways. And as a result, we place less of a premium on experience, you know, and, yeah. and, and I think that's Everything about life boils down to pattern recognition skills, ultimately. That is your greatest gift about getting older. Downside of getting older is we get more wrinkly, and maybe we don't process information as fast. The upside is our pattern recognition skills are way stronger with every year of growth we have, and it takes us less time to recognize a pattern. So we tend to now discount that. Um, We discount age. I'm not saying this because now I'm a little older. I really believe in it. We discount the growth and the pattern recognition that comes with that, and I see it shows up in entrepreneurs a little bit. Like, well, I, I mean, I have Google. I mean, I already know that. I'm like, no, it's different from knowing something in the abstract and having it imprinted on your cortex. So that's what I'm saying. And that was a very long way of saying it.
0: No, yeah, I totally agree. I don't know if this exactly relates, but I I understand what you're saying because when I was 25, I I was a first-time entrepreneur and I failed. I had great brand. I was, you know, almost got a show on MTV, all this cool stuff, but I couldn't monetize what I was doing. I didn't know what I was doing. Then I ended up, going into corporate and I had a lot of years in corporate and then became an entrepreneur. And now I'm successful because I had those experiences to learn off the back of another company, basically. Uh, big companies, right? And so, like, what I tell people on my show is, like, let's say you're you failed as an entrepreneur. Don't be like too cool or something to go get a real job after that and learn from somebody else who's doing it right. Yeah, you I'm, know,
1: 100. I am an amalgam of that which came before. It would be impossible. I mean, now to pull in a little bit of Buddhism, right? Like, what is a book? Is the book the words on a page? The author who wrote the book? The tree that created the book? The water that fed the tree? I don't know. So I'm an amalgam of all that which came before, and a lot of that included jobs, drudgery, also getting it wrong. When in my 20s, when my whole identity was about being like Doogie Howser and you know younger than everything, right? And also just being the hero, you know, took care of his mom and all this, Like that was my whole construct of my personality. It didn't involve working through other people. In fact, like I just would like, let me just tell everybody what to do because I have the answers kind of, and I don't mean that like egotistical way, that's just was the formula, right? And then as I get older, I get so excited to submit to the greatness of others. I love being humbled by somebody's magic. Like Gary, for example, he's so self-possessed and he sleeps eight hours. I'm like, God, if I could sleep two hours. like He's so reconciled to who he is as a person, whether you like him or not. He doesn't care. And I'm amazed by that. I get to submit to the greatness of his self-possession. I seek out opportunities to do that everywhere, professionally. So... That has unlocked more value for me and my family and my professional success than my 20s when I thought that I was the, you know what I mean, the star of the show. And so that's my point. It took time for me to know that. It took pattern recognition for me to realize, I think I'm more successful when I submit to the greatness of others than when I ruminate my own success, right? Like, I seem to get further and seem to enjoy life when I'm humbled by somebody else's mastery of a topic because it tells me that I have more room to grow. There's another marathon to finish, right? I haven't hit the ceiling on uh, myself. And so long way of saying that we, we unfortunately devalue experience and pattern recognition, which doesn't mean simmer down young person. It just means value, seek out what you don't know and get excited when you discover that you didn't know something.
0: So as we wind down, I have a couple more questions for you. I want to talk to you about generation z because a lot of people who are older generations they look down on generation z and they think that they're you know lazy or whatever they want to call them but you actually think that they have great values so talk to us about what you love about generation z and maybe what you think they could do differently because i have a lot of gen z listeners
1: No, oh, i love that topic i i feel really passionate about this general idea that when you're when you're and I use this tacking metaphor, but I won't get into it. But I did a speech called tacking, if you want to look it up. But that when you're when you're sort of on the ground, you're in the middle of things. Things look like they're getting worse, you know, or life is getting worse. But if you take a step back and you look at it from thirty thousand feet, you realize the world is always getting better. And I think Gen Z is a perfect manifestation of our world getting so much better, and it's manifesting in the values of Gen Z. This generation, in my view, is relatively colorblind. And I mean that in a negative way, understanding obviously, you know, all the different experiences we've had depending upon our background and making, you know, accommodations for it. But at the same time, just this this vision of equality that pervades Gen Z is amazing. Same with sexual orientation is amazing. And so I look at my kids and the values they now espouse and their classmates and I look at what I grew up around in Queens. And I'm like, it, it's breathtaking and makes me so happy for the future. So it's honestly, and I'm in, the, I'm 46. So I can, I can. You're
0: not old I, at all. You no, know, I can way. malign
1: myself is my only point. So I'm going to malign myself and anybody my age, I really think it comes from a place of insecurity of the dying of the light. Like, it's hard when you get older, you get like, it's uncomfortable. Like, what is this TikTok? and Like dancing videos and, 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 you know, and like, it. we can't relate. But that's on each of us as we age to refuse to become obsolete and instead embrace or question or wonder or dip our toe into what's going on. You know, if TikTok makes you uncomfortable, then go open an account and see what's going on there. So I think this sort of, this happens almost in every generation. Millennials used to be maligned and now Gen Z is maligned. But what is unquestionable to me is the values that Gen Z espouses. And this isn't just academic, Putting that energy out into the world where like, no, people get to identify however they want to identify. They get to live their life however they want to live their life. We need to make amends for the past. We cannot act like we did not commit the most tremendous, atrocious crime in humanity or among them, with slavery, like, and that has long-standing repercussions. And we need to come to terms with them. We are destroying our environment. We're all going to hell. Like these are important conversations and Gen Z is stimulating and, and spurring them. So I think most of the malign, uh, maligning comes from this sort of discomfort with like, the world seems to be changing so fast and TikTok's so stupid. <laughs> like So I don't know. I find anytime I have that attitude, I'm like, well, no, no, check yourself. That's just you becoming obsolete. You just don't like it. So, mm-hmm. anyway, so anyway, I listen to my beautiful kids, my, my son talk about what's going on in school and and just how he views his friends and an identity and whatnot. And I just think it's breathtakingly amazing. So that's my view.
0: Way to leave on a high note. And the last question I ask all my guests is, what is your secret to profiting in life?
1: I really think it's being intentional. I think that if you look at what's one of the worst emotions we go through, it's not anger, it's not sadness, it's regret. Because it's the one self-inflicted emotion that you can completely avoid. And so the antidote to regret is intention. So I think the, the secret for me profiting in life is I'm always working backwards from my deathbed and my epitaph. What do I want my epitaph to read? And what am I going to feel on my deathbed? And if you think long and hard, you can actually project. I'm like, oh, yeah, it was that. <laughs> I didn't do this. Most of it is I didn't do this, not I did this. It's kind of because most things when you're at 80, are you really going to care that you did this? It's mostly I didn't do this. And so the, the cure to making sure you don't have too many I didn't do this is to be really intentional. So I ask myself every single day, what is the highest and best use of Matt today? Right? It's like a concept I take from land use. We do that with a piece of property. You're always asking, what's the highest and best use of this piece of land today? It evolves as the context evolves. You evolve as your context evolves. So you have to audit, what's the highest and best use? I've changed, I'm not who I was yesterday. My cells are dying, but my brain is growing and my experiences are, you know, are blossoming. Who am I today? And then I set my intentions based on who am I today? And that's why when you look at my crazy life and my crazy repertoire, it's because of that pattern is constantly playing out.
0: Oh my gosh, I love that advice. I would recommend that you guys go rewind that right now. And where can our listeners go to learn more about you and everything that you do?
1: Well, I'm spending a lot of time on LinkedIn. That's kind of my favorite place. And I am, so Matt Higgins on LinkedIn and I have a book coming out, uh, not for a while, but we'll talk more about that. Uh, All about these topics it's called Burn the Boats. Be out in about another year at HarperCollins. So find me on LinkedIn.
0: Awesome, cool. We'll have you back on when you have your book launch. I uh, can't wait for that. Thank you so much, Matt. This was such an awesome conversation.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. You're amazing. Your questions are amazing. and so thought-provoking and uh, I appreciate it.